In Nabucco, uh, I was asked to give you 10 minutes or so on his life, for those who don't know much about Joaquin Nabucco, but then to focus on his uh, ideas. Well, Nabucco is best known inside and outside Brazil uh, on slavery and abolition. He played a central role in the abolition of slavery in Brazil, and he's best known for his thinking about slavery and about abolition. But I'm asked to concentrate on his thinking on international politics, global change, Brazil's place in the world. This is less well known. And Nabucco is a rare example of a Brazilian who really did think within a limited framework. He thought about Brazil's relations with Europe, with Spanish America, and with the United States. Nabucco, a lawyer, man of letters, diplomat, politician, journalist, historian, finally statesman, was a dominant figure in the literary, intellectual, and political life of Brazil during the late empire and the early republic. That is from about 1880, when he was 30 years old, until 1910, when he died aged 60. Just to remind non-Brazilianists quickly, after more than 300 years of Portuguese colonial rule, Brazil declared itself an independent empire in 1822. Brazil's first emperor, Dom Pedro I, abdicated in 1831. After a nine-year regency, his son, Dom Pedro II, aged 14, was declared emperor in 1840 and ruled until 1889, when Brazil became a republic. The first republic lasted from 1889 to 1930. So Nabucco spans the last two decades of the empire and the first two decades of the republic. Nabucco was what we would now call a public intellectual, indeed since he spent almost half his adult life in Europe, mainly London, but also Paris and Rome, and the United States, New York and Washington, and he was deeply engaged in the political, literary, intellectual debates in Europe and in the United States, just as much as in Rio. He was a transnational public intellectual in and from a country on the periphery of the 19th century world system. He was born in August 1849 in Recife, capital of the province, later the state of Pernambuco in the northeast of Brazil, uh, a region characterized by large-scale production of sugar for the European market and African slave labor. His mother belonged to a wealthy family which had owned plantations in Pernambuco since the 16th century. His paternal grandfather and great-uncle were born in Portugal, but both became ministers and senators of the Brazilian Empire. His father was a prominent magistrate, politician, who became president of the province of Sao Paulo, minister of justice, senator, member of the Council of State. Nabucco spent the first eight years of his childhood in Masangana, a sugar plantation worked by slaves in Cabo de Santo Agostinho, 50 kilometers from Recife, owned by his godmother. He didn't meet his father until he was eight years old, mm -hmm. when his godmother died, and he joined his parents in Rio. He was educated at the Colegio Pedro II, one of the city's best schools, and at both of Brazil's leading institutions of higher education, the Faculty of Law in Sao Paulo and the Faculty of Law in Recife. Brazil had no universities at the time. His adult life, let's break it up briefly into four periods. From 1871 to 78, what he called his literary period, intellectual uh, dilettantismo. Uh, reading in Portuguese, English, French, German, mm -hmm. making the grand tour of Europe, 
France, Italy, especially London, a young diplomat for a year in Washington, in fact mostly in New York, and six months in London. Then secondly, 1879 to 89, devoted to politics and journalism. On the death of his father, he somewhat reluctantly started a political career as a liberal deputy uh, in Recife. And he served as a liberal deputy on three separate occasions during the 80s, mainly concerned with the abolition of slavery, the total focus of his political life on the abolition of slavery in 1888. When he was out of the Chamber of Deputies, he spent four periods in London, one of them two and a half years, four periods in London where he mobilized opinion in favor of abolition, where he acted as a lawyer consultant for British companies in Brazil, but mainly as a journalist. He worked for the Journal do Comercio in Rio, La Razón in Montevideo, and O País in Rio de Janeiro throughout the 80s. From 1889 to 1899, the fall of the empire and the establishment of the republic in November 1889 brought an abrupt end to Nabucco's political career. He was a dedicated monarchist. He was not yet 40, and his political career was clearly over. Within a year, he was back in London as a journalist. And he considered staying in Europe, but finally settled for what he called internal exile in Rio de Janeiro. And he devoted the next six and a half years, the longest period he lived in Brazil since he was uh, a young man, to supporting the monarchist cause until that became impossible. Writing for the press, um, publishing several books, including a biography of his father, and Minha Formação. Uh, he was asked to describe Minha Formação uh, by uh, Who's Who in London. And he said it was a literary and political autobiography, published in 1900. The biography of his father and his autobiography are considered classics of Portuguese literature. And in 1897, he was one of the founders of the Academia Brasileira de Letras. Finally, from 1899 to 1910, well, Nabucco was mistaken in thinking that his public life was over in November 1889. Ten years later, 1899, on the eve of his 50th birthday, President Campos Salles invited him to become head of a special mission to London to prepare and present Brazil's case in its dispute with Britain over the boundaries of British Guyana, which was due to go to Italian arbitration. Following the sudden death of the Brazilian minister in London, Nabucco was appointed minister. In fact, he was the last foreign diplomat to present his credentials to Queen Victoria. In December 1900, she died two weeks later. He continued to regard the preparation of Brazil's case in the dispute with Britain over territory in Amazonia as his principal task. And from January 1903, he based himself in Rome, preparing for the arbitration case. And it was there in June 1904 that he was summoned to the Quirinal, along with the British ambassador, to receive King Victor Emmanuel III's ruling totally in favor of Britain. This was a devastating blow to Nabucco. But less than a week later, he was informed by the Brazilian Foreign Minister, Barão do Rio Branco, uh, of a decision to raise the legation in Washington to embassy status. And he invited Nabucco to become Brazil's first ambassador to the United States. He presented his credentials to President Theodore Roosevelt in May 1905. He spent the last four and a half years of his life based in Washington, 
though he traveled widely in the United States, mainly giving lectures in US universities. He made only one visit to Brazil after May 1899 for the third Pan-American Conference in Rio in 1906. And Joaquim Nabucco died in Washington on the 17th of January, 1910. Now, when we think of Nabucco as a global thinker, what are the sources for this? What, what is this based upon? Well, uh, I think it can be based upon his books, particularly Balmaceda, 1895, his study of the Chilean revolution, a uh, civil war, not revolution, civil war, in 1891, and Minha Formação, his autobiography, published a few years ago in English here in Oxford. On his journalism, he wrote 300 articles for Brazilian, a few for Montevideo, but mainly for Rio newspapers. And in the two and a half year period from 82 to 84, for the Journal Comercio, he wrote 250 correspondencias of between five and 10,000 words each. He was asked to write three articles uh, uh, byline London, three articles byline Vienna, and three articles byline Berlin. That is nine a month. He wrote them all in London. He never went to Vienna or Berlin. <laughs> he sent them all from London. They went to Pico, the owner of the journal, in Paris, and then they were shipped from either Bordeaux or Southampton, and it took 25 days mm -hmm. for his articles to arrive to be published in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, a huge amount of writing involved there. His personal correspondence, published in two volumes in 1949. His diaries, published in two volumes in 2005. His diplomatic correspondence, published in two volumes in 2011. And the texts of his US lectures, published in various forms uh, in recent years. These are the main sources for his thinking. When the young Joaquim Nabucco, that is Nabucco in his 20s and 30s, during the final decades of the empire. When he reflected on relations between Brazil and the rest of the world, like the majority of educated Brazilians of his generation, he thought above all of Europe, the historic linguistic and cultural ties of Brazil with Portugal, the influence of France on the art and architecture of Brazil, the influence of France and Great Britain on Brazilian literature and intellectual life, and not least, Brazil's commercial, financial, and to some extent political dependence on Great Britain. Britain was Brazil's principal trading partner. Britain had close to 50% of the Brazilian market. And, Brazil, and London was uh, virtually the only source of loans to the Brazilian government. And as a result of the decisive role played by Britain in the transfer of the court from Lisbon to Rio and the negotiations for the independence uh, of uh, Brazil in 1822, Britain had a particularly close political relationship with Brazil. Nabucco left London on his first visit in 1874, uh, saying, I was touched by the beginnings of Anglomania. Britain had the strongest <laughs> and most lasting influence on his life. He spent six months there as a diplomat, and then four periods during the 80s, one of them of two and a half years, as we've seen. He was a huge admirer of the British constitutional monarchy and the British system of parliamentary government. His Bible 
was Badgett's British Constitution, uh, 1867. Like the majority of Brazilian politicians, diplomats, intellectuals, writers in the 19th century, Nabucco gave very little attention to Spanish America. Brazil had no significant economic relations with the republics of Spanish America, and political relations were limited, except in the Rio de la Plata, where Brazil engaged in three wars between 1825 uh, and 1870, the last one, the Great Paraguayan War, which ended the year Nabucco graduated from the law faculty in Recife. Nabucco maintained few intellectual contacts in Spanish America. He visited Spanish America, that is Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, for the first time in 1889, on his honeymoon, and apart from a couple of weeks in Buenos Aires as a journalist in 1891, and a week in Havana, in 1909, he never went back to Spanish America. <coughs> Brazil maintained friendly but distant political relations with the United States during the empire, and Nabucco spent a year in Washington as an attaché to the legation. He called it a vulgar and violent republic, <laughs> and being there merely served to deepen his admiration for British institutions. Now, the mature Nabucco, let's call him mature Nabucco, Nabucco in his 40s and 50s, during the first two decades of the Brazilian Republic, 1889 to 1910, especially after he re-entered public life in 1899, first as a minister in London, then as ambassador in Washington. He recognized major geopolitical changes were taking place in the world, which profoundly affected Brazil's relationship with the rest of the world. In Balmaceda, uh, in his book in 1895, he referred to the grandes mudanças no sistema geral do mundo. Mm -hmm. And what were these? First, in Europe, British hegemony challenged by a new economic, military, and naval power, Germany. He wrote a lot about this as a journalist in the 80s. Germany was also entering the, British, the Brazilian economy as, as a supplier of goods, as a market, and as for direct investment. By the First World War, Germany had about 20% of Brazilian trade and some modest direct investment. Secondly, Grandes. since the Congress of Berlin in 1885, there had been a resurgence of European imperialism. British, French, German, Italian, Belgian, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, scramble for Africa. The, the competition for influence in, and control of Africa and Asia. Thirdly, outside Europe, Nabucco was quite attracted to the idea that Australia and Canada could one day become important countries in the world. He wrote quite a bit about Australia and Canada. And he thought that there was a, optimistically no doubt, he thought that there was a move from absolute monarchy to parliamentarianism in countries as diverse as Russia, Persia, Japan, and Turkey. And he wrote a lot about that too as a journalist. But above all, and this is where we have to concentrate, after completing its expansion westward and south at the expense of Mexico, the United States had finally emerged as a regional power in Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, and with some ambitions in South America, and even some global pretensions 
the United States mediated in the Russia-Japan War of 1905, and the United States was present at Algeciras in the debate over the conflict over Morocco between France and Germany. The assertion of US hegemony in the Western Hemisphere was signaled by Secretary of State Richard Olney in his famous remark in 1895. The United States is practically sovereign on this continent, and its fiat is law upon the subjects to which it confines its interposition. This was followed by US intervention in the Cuba's war with Spain, annexation of Puerto Rico, Cuban protectorate, US involvement in Panama's separation from Colombia in 1903. The governments of Spanish America generally reacted to this new US interventionism in the hemisphere, inevitably with apprehension, suspicion, mistrust. Intervention destroyed national sovereignty and possibly led to annexation. For the most part, the Spanish-American government supported what was known or became known as the Drago Doctrine. In December 1902, Luis Maria Drago, the foreign minister of Argentina, took the opportunity of an Anglo-Italian-German blockade of Venezuela for failing to pay its debts to declare there was no justification for armed intervention in Latin America by the great powers, including the United States, not the European powers, the United States. And the US response was to resurrect and strengthen the Monroe Doctrine. Remember the Monroe Doctrine? Uh, the uh, James, President James Monroe's State of the Union Address to Congress in December 1823 during the Spanish-American Revolutionary Wars for Independence, in which he said the United States was opposed any extension of European political system, any interference by the European powers in any part of this hemisphere. The American, I'm quoting, the American continents are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for colonization by any European power. Of course, this was rhetorical because everybody knew at the time that it was British diplomacy and the British Navy that kept the European reactionary powers out of the Western Hemisphere. But the US responded with President Roosevelt's annual message to Congress in December 1904, which included what became known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Chronic wrongdoing or an impotence which results in a general loosening of the ties of civilized society, Roosevelt asserted, may in Latin America, as elsewhere, ultimately require intervention by some civilized power. In the Western <laughs> Hemisphere, the United States may be forced, however reluctantly, to exercise an international police power. Now, how did Nabucco react to this? Nabucco was conscious that Brazil shared with Spanish America a common Iberian and Catholic background. But he was also aware of what separated Brazil from Spanish America. Geography, obviously, history, above all language and culture, and not least political institutions. Like most leading Brazilian intellectuals and writers at the time, Nabucco viewed Spanish America, known in Spanish America as America Latina, in an overwhelmingly negative light. As a monarchist, Nabucco regretted the fall of the empire of Brazil 
And for him, Spanish America represented a terrible warning to Brazil for all that was wrong with Republican government. Anarchy, revolution, civil war, caudillismo, military dictatorship. And his correspondence and diaries at this time are full of comments like, I never thought to see Brazil reduced to the level of a Paraguay, Uruguay, Ecuador, Argentina. Seeing Brazil become a Venezuela, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, the property of a short-lived despot. How was it possible that Brazil could be, some, could be South Americanized, reaching a level of degradation typical of this unhappy hemisphere? He was not opposed to US intervention in Latin America, and he approved of the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. He didn't believe that this represented US imperialism. He didn't believe that the United States was looking for colonies or even protectorates. But he considered the ascend what he called the ascendancy of the United States in the American continent natural and generally beneficial. US interventionism provided, where necessary, much needed order, peace, and stability in Spanish America, which was in Brazil's national interest. Brazil itself, now that the Republic had stabilized itself, was well governed, fulfilled its international obligations, was a long way from the United States, and had really nothing to fear from the United States, in his view. On the contrary, Nabucco came to believe that Brazilian foreign policy should be based on a close friendship with the United States, especially now that the United States was more active and assertive in the Western Hemisphere. The main reason for this was what now will seem to us highly exaggerated, but what he believed was a resurgent European imperialism posing a threat to Brazil. European imperialism, for him, was a much greater threat to Brazil and Spanish America than US imperialism. And what was the best protection against a resurgent European imperialism? The Monroe Doctrine. A dominant feature of Brazilian diplomacy since independence, since independence had been the generally successful confirmation of its frontiers with its Spanish-American neighbours, based on the frontiers generally recognised by Spain and Portugal under the Treaty of Madrid in 1750. But Brazil, remember, what he called o imenso todo chamado Brasil, the enormous territory of Brazil, 8,500 square kilometres, with a population in 1889 of 14 million. 14 million. Most of that on the huge Atlantic coast of Brazil. And Brazil was a weak country with limited, almost non-existent military uh, or naval power. The European powers, he believed, were challenging and threatening non-European sovereignty over what they called non-occupied territory, especially non-occupied territory with only, no, only nominally belonging to inferior races. So you find Nabucco writing extensively in his diaries, in his correspondence, uh, that, for example, as minister in London in 1901, Europe is already threatening South America, like China, like Asia, like Africa. And in December 1902, he described recent issues of two journals published in London, The Spectator and The Saturday Review, as disgusting. He used the word English word, disgusting. 
they discussed the partition of South America as if it were Africa. And there's no doubt that Nabucco's experience an ultimate defeat in the international arbitration of Brazil's boundaries with British Guiana served to reinforce his concern about European threats to Brazilian territorial integrity. And as early as October 1883, in an article in La Razón of Montevideo, Nabucco expressed support for the Monroe Doctrine, the only obstacle preventing European recolonization of South America by the European powers was the Monroe Doctrine. And in Balmaceda's book on Chile, Monroeism, in the final analysis, he said, what is Monroeism? Monroeism is the promise made by America, sorry, the promise made to America by, as a whole, by the United States, that Europe would not acquire any further territory. In the New World. And as Brazilian minister in London, he asked his friend, who was the president's secretary at the time, to tell President Campos Salles, there is no one more Monroeist than I. And he wrote to the Baran do Rio Branco, who was about to become foreign minister, I'm a committed Monroeist and therefore a great supporter of ever closer approximation between Brazil and the United States. José María da Silva Paranhos, the Baran do Rio Branco, became Brazilian foreign minister in December 1902, the same month in which Draco formulated his doctrine. He had written a few years earlier, I prefer that Brazil maintain the closest relations with Europe rather than throw itself into the arms of the United States. But as foreign minister for nine years until he died in 1912, the dominant figure in Brazilian, the history of Brazilian foreign relations, Brazilian foreign uh, diplomacy. Rio Branco uh, committed himself to strengthening political relations with the United States as a top priority. The United States was also beginning to be rather more important in the Brazilian economy. It was the main, main market for Brazilian coffee and rubber uh, and there was the beginnings of some direct investment in Brazil. And as soon as the negotiations with Britain over Guyana were concluded in failure, Rio Branco invited Nabucco to go to Washington as Brazil's first ambassador. There were only seven embassies in Washington at the time, and the only one in Latin America was Mexico. Nabucco accepted because, as we've seen, he described in his reply to Rio Branco, I accept because of the strong desire to cooperate in the establishment of our American foreign policy. And this is why Rio Branco made him the first ambassador in Washington. In reply to a letter congratulating him on his appointment, he said, we are, we are on the eve of a new era. A global political system was replacing the old European system. And to understand it, Washington is the best observatory. That is to say, the center of Brazilian diplomacy was moving from London to Washington, D.C. with Nabucco. On presenting his credentials, to President Theodore Roosevelt in 1905, Nabucco declared that he had dedicated himself to a cause, a cause, closer relations between Brazil and the United States that had come to fill the void left in his soul by the successful achievement of another great cause, the abolition of slavery in Brazil. That's how important it was in his thinking. We move from the abolition of slavery, now the main cause is closer relations with the United States for the reasons I've tried to explain. In a long letter to José Carlos Rodríguez, the owner 
of the newspaper he'd written for in the 80s. He said, for us, the choice is between monarism and European colonization. America can only be protected by sea power, and only the United States has it. Monarism is thus the affirmation of national independence and national integrity by the only system that can guarantee it. Tell that to the Spanish-American republics. They didn't see it at all that way, as you know. <laughs> Nabucco saw himself in Washington um, not only to facilitate a new era in US-Brazilian relations, but as a mediator, interlocutor, between the United States and Latin America. While accepting the validity of the Roosevelt Corollage of Monroe Doctrine, of course, he believed in general terms in good relations between the United States and Spanish American republics. This was in Brazil's interests. And to this end, he was an enthusiastic supporter of what became known as Pan-Americanism. Now, Pan-Americanism, you could say, had its origins in the 1820s the revolutionary period in Spanish America. The, the, in, in Whitaker's famous book, The Idea of the Western Hemisphere, the concentration is on the 1820s, the American system, when the United States showed some interest in creating links between itself and the Spanish American Republic. Brazil wasn't only just becoming independent at this time. But the United States disengaged after the Panama Congress, which it didn't attend anyway. And it was only in the 1880s the politicians in the United States returned to the idea there was a Western Hemisphere, the Americas, the New World. It was different from Europe, the Old World. And there were special relationships between the peoples and governments of the Americas. A shared American geography, a shared American history, shared American ideas of republicanism, liberty, democracy, though there wasn't much democracy in Latin America. The International Conference of the Nations of America, held in Washington in 1889, was the first attempt to institutionalize what later became known as Pan-Americanism. The aim was to promote US trade and investment in the region, as the US economy was now going through a period of rapid uh, uh, growth, to encourage peaceful settlement of disputes, to create more orderly and predictable <coughs> political structures in the countries to the south, and to assert peacefully, if possible, US leadership throughout the Western Hemisphere, while deterring any lingering European ambitions in the Hemisphere. The second conference was held in Mexico in 1901, the third in Rio in 1906. The Spanish-American republics feared, with good reason, that Pan-Americanism was an instrument for the consolidation of US political and economic hegemony and the future exploitation of the region. The republics sent representatives to the conferences mainly to criticize the United States. Brazil, on the other hand, gave total support to the United States at all the Pan-American conferences. In 1906, Nabucco persuaded the US Secretary of State, Elihu Root, to attend the third Pan-American conference in Rio de Janeiro. It was the first official visit abroad by a US Secretary of State anywhere in the world. And he told Root at a dinner party before going, you should flirt with all the countries of Latin America, but I hope you'll only marry us. 
And Nabucco urged Rio to take advantage of the greatest opportunity of your life, a unique opportunity to take the first solid, solid steps towards an entente, which I believe is destined to become one day an alliance between the United States and Brazil. Now, Rio Branco, as foreign minister, was obliged to be more pragmatic, more cautious than his ambassador in Washington. Although he promoted closer relations with the US and had no fear of US intervention in Brazil, he didn't want to see Brazil reduced to the position of a satellite of the United States and to abdicate what he called its personalidade internacional. Moreover, he harbored some concerns about the use of the big stick to consolidate US hegemony in the hemisphere. And while equally negative about Spanish America in general, he recognized that two countries, Chile and Argentina, had begun to make significant economic and political progress. And he was anxious to develop relations with what he saw as the three great nations of South America, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. Nabucco was disappointed by Rio Branco's speech closing the Rio conference, since he chose to emphasize the continued importance of Europe. He, he spoke about Latin America and Brazil's cultural links with Europe, and Brazil's commercial and financial relations with Britain, France, and increasingly Germany. But Nabucco was, on the whole, pleased and with the role he played in reducing antagonism, reducing antagonisms between the Spanish-American republics and the United States. While Nabucco continued to support the idea of Pan-Americanism, in letters to Rio Branco and to Riva Bosa and others, uh, he revealed some doubts about the institutions of Pan-Americanism, in which, of course, all republics were equal. When the nations of the Americas, the United States, the Spanish-American Republic, Brazil, met at these conferences, countries were, republics were equal. Which, he said, means that a Nicaraguan vote is the same as a US vote. The island of Santo Domingo, which consisted of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, has two votes. Brazil has one. Uh, Brazil's vote, he said, was worth less than the votes of any two miserable Central American republics. And uh, whereas what he called English America, the United States, had one vote, and Portuguese America, Brazil, by a miracle of history, had remained united, so Brazil had one vote. Spanish America, because of its historic failure and fragmentation, had 18 votes. And the Spanish-speaking countries have, quote, a natural tendency to form a united front with close to 20 votes against Brazil's single vote. Nabucco saw the Americas as having two principal republics, not equal, but principal. The United States in the north, Brazil in the south. Both were continental in size. Both had huge natural resources and economic potential both politically stable, and in this and other respects, history, language, culture, both were different from Spanish America. And he hoped, and clearly failed, that in the international union of the American states, 
Brazil would claim a privileged place alongside the United States, which Nabucco felt it deserved but didn't receive. Brazil's debut on the world stage, Brazil declined an invitation to attend the first international peace conference at The Hague in 1899, but Brazil's debut on the world stage was at the second peace conference at The Hague in June 1907. The Brazilian delegation was not led by Nabucco, as he expected, but by the distinguished jurist Rui Barbosa. And at The Hague, Brazil sympathized with the US position on the Drago Doctrine, but Brazil, Rui Barbosa, instructed by Rio Branco, supported as an Assange Latin Americanus against the United States on the central question of equal representation on the proposed International Court of Justice. This was the first attempt to create an International Court of Justice, and Brazil supported the Spanish American Republics in demanding equal representation. In response to the US argument that only the great powers, including the United States, of course, now, the European powers of the United States, should be permanently represented. Barbosa made a sensational speech, famous speech, uh, on the equality of nations, large and small, in international law, for which he was fated not only in Brazil for having made such a huge impact at an international conference, but all over Latin America. Rui Barbosa's speech was quoted and debated because he represented the interests of all the Latin American republics. Now, that's an important moment in, in Brazil's uh, international uh, uh, role. But alone, Nabucco was dismayed by this. Nabucco didn't like this at all. He two reasons. The first reason was he disagreed with the principle of absolute equality of nations in international deliberations. I don't believe, he wrote to Ribabosa, that in an international assembly or tribunal, the vote of a state representing one or two million people ought to have the same weight as another representing 50 or 80 million. This is not equality, this is inequality, since no social contract is made without respect for the law of proportionality. Honduras, Haiti, Panama should not be treated the same as England, Germany, the United States. The second reason and for him much more important, was that he feared that Brazil's decision to line up with the Spanish-American republics against the United States at The Hague on the issue of the International Court of Justice would affect, quote, the confidence that we inspire in the United States. He deplored that Barbosa had a really bad press in the United States, as you can imagine, and Nabucco deplored the way that Barbosa was treated, the gross, stupid way in which Barbosa was treated in the US press, but he also warned against Brazilian triumphalism. He said, you know, this will only increase US resentment and ill will towards Brazil and weaken the US-Brazil relationship. We must not appear to want to leave the conference victorious against the United States, he wrote in his diary. To defeat the United States is no doubt a glorious achievement for any nation. Any nation. There are many things that irritate and offenders about the United States. But we must understand 
that our only foreign policy is to secure their friendship. In the middle of 1908, feeling entirely isolated, in Teramenshi Isoladu, he wrote to a friend that although he was never more convinced that Brazil had no other possible foreign policy, he feared that what he called the American idea was losing ground. Uh, Rio Branco was intending to substitute it with ultras alliances, which demonstrated that he simply didn't understand the march of history and no longer had an instinct for self-preservation. Nabucco wrote a, a very interesting uh, letter to a very close friend in 1907. Between Europe and America, for better or for worse, no Latin American nation has a choice. America. In America, if it were not for any cause other than language, which isolates us from the rest of Ibo-America, just as it separates Portugal and Spain, in America, we can't hesitate between the United States and Spanish America, the United States. The unwritten alliance with the United States the, the issue de segurança, the security provided by the Monroe Doctrine, which was more important than the biggest navy or the biggest army we could possibly have. The unwritten alliance with the United States remained, in his view, the alpha and the omega of our foreign policy. For Nabucco, Rio Branco's Triplice Alianza Sul-Americana, the, the alliance between Argentina, Chile, and Brazil, in fact, he said, Calquera alianza sul americana, any, any relationship with South America, was absurd and would have consequences disastrosas. And he told Rio Branco this frequently. Finally, the Nabucco devoted, devoted the years 1908 to 1909, in which he was increasingly concerned about his health, to his diplomatic duties but also to a series of lectures he delivered uh, in US, leading US universities. Uh, in the first half of 1906, he had already been to Michigan, uh, the American Academy of Social and Political Sciences in Philadelphia, uh, Berkeley, Stanford, and Columbia. In 1989, he went to Yale, Chicago, Vassar, Cornell, and Wisconsin. It's a pretty impressive list of United States universities that wanted to hear uh, the views of the Brazilian ambassador in Washington. Two of these lectures are of interest to us here. One, the one in Chicago, August 1908, called The Approach of the Two Americas. There he reflected on the two parts of our continent, the United States, Latin America, the mutual ignorance the two. The fear and mistrust of the United States in the Republicas Latinas, Spanish America, compared with Brazil's close relationship with the United States. He reflected on all this. In the second one, called The Share of America in Civilization, at the University of Wisconsin at Madison in June 1909, it was actually read for him. He was too ill at this time to travel. It was not, he didn't give it there, it was read for him. But he gave him an opportunity to reflect on the United States 
to which he had become totally devoted and to which he focused solely on Brazil's relationship, the importance of Brazil's relationship with the United States. Now, in Minha Formação, the autobiography in 1900, Nabucco had recognized US, the US contribution to what he called material civilization. But he argued that the United States remained far behind Europe in civilization, intellectual, cultural. And, and he said this before when he was a, a, an attache in Washington in the 70s, he said humanity wouldn't lose much if the United States suddenly disappeared from the face of the earth. <laughs> of course, if France or England or Italy or Spain or Germany disappeared, this would be serious, but the United States, not really. A decade later, in this lecture in Madison, Nabucco had now been four years in Washington and devoted himself to US-Brazil relations. Nabucco had come to be a great admirer of, the, of US civilization which he saw as essentially an extension of Europe, and mainly of Great Britain. It's Anglo-Saxon civilization that he's interested in. Uh, in the lecture of Madison, he declared that while, and he repeated it, while most probably the destiny of mankind would in the end be the same if America had never appeared above the water, he did now concede that without it, much that had been added to civilization wouldn't exist. And what did he mean? Not just material well-being, the economic growth, what was now beginning to be impressive economic growth in the United States and the standard of living uh, across the United States. He was interested in individuality and liberty, characteristicamente anglo-saxonica, democracy, distintamente americana, free and extensive public education, Immigration, characteristic Americana, respect for women in opposition to the tendencies geral do mundo, religious toleration, and last but not least, igualdade da condições sociais entre todas as classes da nação. Equal social equality of a kind not seen in Europe. What is extraordinary to me is that he never mentioned post-slavery in the United States. Given his the first part of his life dedicated to the abolition of slavery in Brazil, and his deep concern about what would happen to ex-slaves and what kind of society would exist in Brazil after slavery, and very progressive views on all this, here he is, 20 years later, writing about American civilization. And we're, we're, in, the, we're in the world of Jim Crow, we're in the world of segregation, uh, racial segregation, social segregation, denial of the right to vote to uh, Afro-Americans. And there is not one reference, I think I'm right, uh, uh, towards uh, about racial segregation in all these extraordinarily positive things he had to say, seriously positive things about the United States. There was, however, in his view, no evidence that intellectual and cultural hegemony had passed from Europe to America. He wrote, Europe has not begun to decay. For many centuries, Europe and America will lead together. And then, as an afterthought, he said, he concluded, speaking of America, all this America, Europe, American civilization, Europe, speaking of America, 
I have all the time taken the part for the whole and talked only of this country, the United States, Madison, Wisconsin. He then said, it's rather early to speak of the part assigned in history to Latin America. And it's left unclear whether he said Latin America including Brazil or not including Brazil. In his last telegram to Rio Branco, two days before he died, he died in Washington in January 1910, in his last telegram to Rio Branco, he insisted yet again there are not two Americas, there are three Americas. English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Three distinct Americas. And that takes us into a whole different debate about Joaquin Nabucco. In what was the meaning of Latin America at this time? Was it only Spanish America? Did it include Brazil or not? Were there politicians, intellectuals, who thought that Brazil was part of Latin America? or relatively few in Brazil, relatively few in Spanish America, and more and more in the United States. The United States was now using the term Latin America in English to include Brazil, but in Spanish America, it usually didn't include Brazil, and in Brazil, it didn't usually include Brazil. But that's a whole different story for another occasion.